Just a note, this episode does contain some coarse language. I started gymnastics when I was six years old. They had a trampoline tumbling track and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a sport that is called trampolining. That's Sophie Newlove. She's 10 years old and she's just back from the National Gymnastics Champs. She is super sporty and a really great artist. But Sophie has many challenges that people don't see. She spent a lot of her life feeling like the naughty kid. Kia ora, I'm Sonia Gray and this is No Such Thing As Normal. We're exploring the fascinating, often challenging world of neurodiversity. Now if you're a parent, you'll be familiar with meltdowns, especially if you have a toddler. But some people, especially those whose brains are wired differently, have super sensitive nervous systems, which means they can go into the state of overwhelm more often. Ten-year-old Sophie knows all about overwhelm and meltdowns. She's ADHD and autistic with a demand-avoidant profile. There is a lot going on in that incredible little brain. Her brother Fletcher is autistic with ADHD too. And for many years, their dad Rob says it was unsustainable. We've been exposed to violence, we've been exposed to harm, trying to prevent self-harm. All the, all the nasty words you could possibly think of definitely come out during a meltdown. Life was hard, life was depressing, it sucked I just thought I'd never get out of this pit. Well, I thought she'd never get out of the pit and that things would never, ever, ever improve. It's not fun, is it? No, it's absolutely not fun. Your life turns to shit for, for years, year on year, and, and nobody else gets it unless it's a parent of another neurodiverse kid that's got similar kind of traits and similar kind of meltdowns. And you're just so frustrated that you just sit in your room in the evening and you're just talking and you're just trying to figure out, what are we doing that's so Why is this so hard? We don't understand. And the desperation, you're just looking for anything. You're looking for, is there there medication we need? Is there more psychology services we need? Is there more this, that, and the other thing that we need? And and just sort of looking for anything. So at breaking point, Rob and his wife Carla decided that radical change was needed. Rob left his high-paying job in IT to focus on saving the family. He'd come across the work of psychologist Ross Green, who's developed a method called Collaborative Problem Solving, or CPS. This meant working with their kids to find out what's causing the behaviour rather than focusing on the behaviour itself. And three years on, it's changed their lives. But initially, it was hard. When Rob sat down to read Ross Green's book, The Explosive Child, it was hugely triggering. I got about halfway through chapter one and wanted to throw the thing out the bloody window because it triggered such a strong response in me. I was going, because it was me. It was me in that book. And you feel like such a failure. When, when I felt like such a failure. I just wanted to throw out the window. I just thought, oh, it was too confronting for me. Rob says at that point, he was a typical alpha male dad. It's my way or the highway. You know, thought I was doing the right thing and being a good parent. And actually, no, what I'm doing is forcing my children to mask, making the problems worse, not better. <laughs> I was brought up this way. You know, if you didn't do things right, you might get a thump or you might get told to 
go to your room and shut your door and bugger off for the whole entire day. And basically, you just unilaterally got dealt with, and that was that. And there was no conversation about it at all or discussion. It, it's it's just complete idiocy. And quite frankly, I find the way I was, I, I think I was just a raving parent lunatic acting that way. And, and pretty goddamn childish, to be frank. <laughs> and a bit pathetic too. I just wished I'd known this stuff before. Yeah, but you know what, Rob? You had to get to rock bottom to reach out for something that was actually completely different to go, okay, you know what? I'll try anything. If you hadn't been at rock bottom, you probably wouldn't have gone here, would you? Exactly. No, no, exactly right. I, I wouldn't have climbed out of the pit. But you can't kick yourself for hindsight. We do the best we can with the tools we have at the time. Of course, Rob's style of parenting didn't cause his kids to have challenges, but it certainly didn't help. Now, since adopting this new method and dropping expectations, the daily meltdowns have melted away. But it's another thing entirely, trying to get the rest of society on board to understand that the behaviour we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. School has been a minefield for his daughter Sophie. Initially, she managed to hold it in, but that comes at a cost. What this meant was that Sophie was masking a lot of the time when she was under pressure at school, and it all got brushed under the carpet at that stage. And It was extremely just heartbreaking and frustrating. We didn't know what to do when she comes home. The mask comes off because that's the safe place, right? And that's where we see the four-hour-long meltdowns because she doesn't have the coping skills because her emotional development is not the same as other children. It's a huge thing to leave your full-time job and take that financial hit. I call Rob back. I want to find out how they got to this point. Like, like most parents of neurodivergent kids, uh, you know, schooling's real tough. You're constantly down there with the please explain why this has happened. But you're still dealing with a system that is very much behaviours can be modified and regulated through their own school system and, and programme, which clearly does not work and never has worked. It wasn't long before Sophie was unable to keep the mask up at school. She developed selective mutism and her dysregulation meant outbursts, which were not ideal for anyone. The family tried a few schools, and in the end, Rob and Carla pulled her out to protect their daughter's mental health, but also because they recognised that schools just didn't have the tools. What sort of support and help did she have? None. They, they just said, oh, we've got other kids here that are way worse than her, so there's no ORs for her, there's no RTLB for her, there's nothing for her here. I just don't think that they understood the depth and, and the width of a neurodiverse kid that doesn't have a visible disability, like in a wheelchair or, or what have you. But when it comes to being autistic, being ADHD, all your, all your D words, your dyspraxias, your dyscalcula, uh, any of those, there's, there's some support if you're perhaps dyslexic these days, but there is no full-on support put in place for neurodiverse kids. But I don't want the teachers to feel like they have to deal with something that is well beyond the scope of, of what a teacher is actually trained to deal with, particularly with a neurodiverse child. Because meltdowns are horrible, man. They, they, they spit tax and they lose control. When I first talked to Rob, he's been homeschooling Sophie for six or seven weeks. But despite all the challenges that school poses, Sophie really does want to find her place there. What's your favourite subject in school? Everything. Really? Do you love learning? Yeah, I do. It's so entertaining. I just never stop doing it, especially at home school. I never I hyper-focus on everything. I'm even doing algebra on my booklet right now. Well, not right now, but I'm still on progress for my algebra. 
but something Sophie's had to endure for years is bullying, and it broke her. It's not like physical bully. It's yeah. like a social bully, excluding me every single day. I thought they were my real friends, but they gaslighted me all year. And how did that, How does that make you feel? Left out and paranoid, anxious. And sad, I imagine. There's such an excluder rats. It is such an excluder rats. And so often is the experience for kids who are different. And when you don't have that safety net of friendships, the world can feel like a very lonely place. One of the enduring myths around neurodiversity, particularly autism, is that relationships just aren't important to them. Someone who feels really strongly about this is Matt Frost. He's a principal policy analyst at FICAHA, the Ministry of Disabled People, which is the first of its kind in the world. Matt is autistic himself, and he's passionate about improving the lives of neurodivergent and disabled people. But we start by talking about something else we are both super passionate about, and that is cricket. Matt is a cricket scorer, and he's done a lot of it. I think I've probably scored over 10,000 hours of cricket, I think, um, in, in 30 years. So, so I've watched a lot of cricket. <laughs> Some people might think that sounds like hell, but I get it. In fact, I'm a wee bit jealous. Matt and I first met when we were both working at the Women's Cricket World Cup a few years ago. And when life has been challenging, cricket and the people involved have been a saviour for Matt. And he wants people to know that despite the myths, human connection is super important for autistic and neurodivergent people. I'm really strong on this. So we want to have good, social, romantic, personal relationships. We desperately want to have that stuff. But the thing about human behaviour is that human behaviour is incredibly complex and it's not consistent and it can be very, very nuanced, right? So that for us can be a challenge that one way of behaving can be acceptable in one context and another form of behaving that's a little bit different and a little bit more subtle can be quite not acceptable in another context. And getting those social contexts and knowing where those social contexts roll can be very, very challenging. The thing is, a lot of our social norms just don't make sense. They're not natural. They're not normal. The difference is some of us find it easier to play the game. I understand social behaviour because I've had to learn through trial and error how <laughs> social behaviour works, right? And sometimes what I do is I critique some of that social behaviour and go, actually, who decides that that social behaviour is acceptable or not? And what's my place in having a say about what that social behaviour might be? That is such a good point. Who does decide what these rules are? My mate Nick is autistic. He's late diagnosed and he says he's spent a lifetime masking, practising the right social behaviour. He even fooled me. Now, a few weeks ago, we were round at a mutual friend's house and I... Something came out of my mouth that, as I was saying it, I was like, why are you saying that, Sonia? <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing to say. I said, but Nick, you don't seem autistic. 
And I'm sorry for saying that, but I guess a lot of people must feel like that because you are the life of the party. We have this idea that autistic people are sort of not social and, you know, you know the image that we yes. have. Well, the which rain- is abs- the Rain Man, yes. yes. And, yeah, and you are kind of the antithesis of that. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I hate the Rain Man stereotype because – Yay for bringing awareness for for autistic people, but it's created this thing where like we're all sort of anorak wearing kind of statisticians, and some of us are, and that's fine, whatever you know. But I mean, I've got my definite geekiness, like in spades. You know, I can talk about all sorts of arcane ridiculousness. But being late diagnosed, you have to navigate the world. So yeah, I would like to sort of divulge and info dump my my sort of special interests while people sort of nod uncomfortably at me but i've kind of learned that you can't really do that or it's it's not i mean it's not you can't but people react negatively if you start doing that with with you know and you have to kind of try and judge what people are thinking which is actually quite hard sometimes anyway masking and working out how to fit in tends to be a more natural thing for women and girls But besides the stress and anxiety it causes, it can also be a barrier when you're trying to get a diagnosis. We met Danny in episode one of this series, and we heard how she was misdiagnosed for years. But even after she had made the connection herself and was identifying as autistic, she still wasn't allowed access. I started the process of getting my diagnosis at 18, but I've only gotten it in recent months. But it was still a really hard process in these last two years. I had specialists that I'd gone to see for an ASD assessment and he basically told me that I was pretending and even though I'd stated all the different autistic traits that I had and the issues that I dealt with and even the positives that I dealt with that are still autistic traits, um, he, he listened to them. He had them all in his notes, but he simply just said, I don't believe you. I haven't seen any of that. And I said, but isn't that the whole point of a mask? And I then had a meltdown in front of him after he told me this because it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely devastating. Danny has embraced her autistic brain, but she still feels it's risky to be herself in all situations. It's something I have to hide from my workplace for the whole year that I've been there and I've only just recently told my manager, who is a lovely guy, but I'm worried that someone might go, you're autistic, you can't be working in an ECE centre, you're not fit to look after these children and I have to be very careful and very wary always about how people are interpreting what I say and what I do because I don't want people to tell me that I can't work in the area that I love because I'm autistic. Research from the UK shows 72% of people don't share their neurodiversity with their workplace, mainly because they fear negative consequences. But Danny is glad she finally did. The reaction that I got from my manager was, oh, I, I didn't even see it, I couldn't tell. And I said, well, it's not something you can see, so I wouldn't expect you to see it. And he was like, right, 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 and had a bit of a giggle about it. But like, I knew that he had good intentions, he just obviously wasn't sure how to handle it. Autism has been described as a disability of trust, but I think that reflects the experience of most neurodivergent people, regardless of their profile or diagnosis. It can be a lack of trust of other people and their reactions, 
or sometimes a lack of trust in yourself, how your brain or body will respond to the environment. Sensory processing issues are massive for Nick Marsh. I really am very, very sensitive to sound, which probably explains why I'm into music. But um, if there's kind of noise pollution or anything or, you know, stuff like um, the fucking leaf blowers, are like they're, they're, they're like, ugh. Awful. And I, I would not even know what the sound of a leaf blower oh, is. Oh, I could probably name the frequency of it. <laughs> but see, I love that because, you know, the rest of us are sort of going around in our own merry way and there's I'm Nick spinning going, out. I'm spin- I sp- it spins me out. J- jet skis are the leaf blowers of the ocean. You know, I, love that. I go down to Fong and Matar quite a lot and they're all there. And it's like a knife going through my head, honestly. It must be so hard. Going through life when so much of the world is kind of at you yeah, all the time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It must be exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting, yeah. But it must be great to know it's just not it's not you being precious or, you know, like, oh, I just don't like that noise. It's actually the way your brain works. It just is really sensitive to certain frequencies yeah. and it's not your fault. Yes. That must be a relief, is it? It is, but then the thing is being, you know, being being creative, you can get sort of labelled with with that. And if things kind of like overwhelm you on a sensory level, it can be sort of dismissed as, you know, being precious. So you just have to deal with it and then you can come home and then collapse on a heap. Lucy Charles is a paediatric occupational therapist. She works with lots of kids who have sensory integration challenges, It's very easy to label them picky eaters or overly sensitive. It's way more than that. Certain textures, tastes, sounds and smells can send their nervous system into a panic. So for some children, that visceral response they can get from even just seeing food or even knowing that food is in in the room. Lucy was supporting one young boy who found certain foods intolerable, including mandarins. I did tell him one day, there is a mandarin in my a filing cabinet, and he literally couldn't come into the room. So that's how big that sensory response that he gets from the thought of different types of foods. So it's real. It's real for, for children. What What is it? Because, you know, I have a child with definitely not so bad anymore, but as a little girl, just food and clothing was so mm-hmm. massive for her. Mm-hmm. You know, I really did think she would rather starve than mm-hmm. eat something that mm-hmm. she can't tolerate. Mm-hmm. For those of us that don't have that, can you kind of describe what might be going on in their bodies and brains? Yeah. So their sensory systems are wired in a different way. And so, um, for example, the buzzing light in my room, they can hear it, whereas I can't, and neither can the mechanic. You can't who keeps use it now. In. No, I can't. Oh, can I you can. hear it? Yeah. <laughs> so oh. we're all different in how we process sensory information. Now um, it's bugging me. Oh no! Are you really? So I can't hear anything but that. Shit, light. Well, I've been <laughs> off for a long time. <laughs> yeah. The world must be very hard when you're got all the sensory stuff coming in, like mm, absolutely, and hard for others to understand. There's some lovely videos on the internet, actually. There's one of a, a young boy in a mall, and it's – have you seen it? Yeah. So it just shows that heightened awareness and what happens to some children when they're exposed to bright lights or noises that their nervous system just can't cope with it. Does that come with some positives as well? Just the fact that they've got so much information coming in or the brain is trying to process all of this, they can't mm-hmm. filter out things as well. 
of course it's different for everyone. Are, the, are those same kids often have skills in other areas? Well, yeah. So if you're particularly sensitive to light or bright lights and things like that, we do also see, obviously everyone's different, but you know, quite a lot of autistic children are really, really good at noticing detail in the world around them visually. And they have this creative eye. I mean, I've got little children drawing the most incredible things because their visual skills are so incredible. Imagine for a moment, you start the day wearing socks with seams that to you feel like sandpaper. You go to school and there's a random assembly, which means you have to sit still in close proximity to other kids and no one tells you how long you're going to be there for. Then at morning tea, you try to join in a game, but the other kids don't give you a turn. There's a maths test and it's timed and you can't do maths, let alone do it quickly. The upshot is a nervous system that says enough. What we might see is so-called bad behaviour. What it actually is, is a meltdown. Ten-year-old Sophie knows all about these. And I ask her what a meltdown feels like for her. My brain just feels dizzy and uh, runs out of energy very quickly when it feels dizzy. And scary as well. It's really, really scary. Sometimes I just pass out. Sophie's dad, Rob, jumps in to elaborate. She doesn't pass out as in, as in uh, fall over and can't move. She's described it to me before as she loses control and she doesn't even remember. The brain gets to a certain point of, of stress and the whole thing gets blacked out. So that's what she means by uh, passing out. So she, and you ask a few questions about what was happening during that time. She shouldn't even be able to tell her because she literally does not know. She cannot remember. And that, that's scary because she doesn't know what's going on, and that's why she finds them so scary is that complete and utter loss of control and also memory loss. Being in that um, heightened state, they often do not remember the things that have occurred during that state because they're so far gone. The brain is so disconnected, and they're relying on their reptilian instincts for survival at that point. And Sophie is beginning to understand how she reaches the meltdown state. When I've been really annoyed and I waste all my spoons, you know about the spoons? It's... Yeah, I've known them for like two months. Can you tell me, because a lot of people that are listening to this won't, they'll be like, spoons? What is she talking about? Can you just explain the idea of the spoons? Uh, the spoons is the amount of energy you can cope with. So you mean we all start the day with a certain amount of spoons, eh? Yeah. And what happens as the day goes on? Uh, so, uh, normally I have six spoons each day, and if someone says, go clean your room, that wastes one spoon, and if say something like, clean the kitchen, then I would burst into a meltdown. And what about at school? Sometimes, what happens if you run out of spoons at school? Then I'll probably meltdown or go into a micro-meltdown, which is saying rude words like blah, 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 the H word. Do you know what the H word is? No. Hate. That one. Ah, oh, right. So you might use that to someone. Yeah, I say it all the time, especially in a micro-meltdown or an actual meltdown, when I'm all blown red face. What does it feel like after you've had the meltdown when you know that you've said the H word and you might have been mean to people or something? What is it what does it feel like afterwards? Uh just feels like I'm in jail or something. That must be a horrible feeling. A horrible, horrible feeling. 
Do you have any way to tell your teacher if you feel like it's getting that way? Like you're running out of spoons? What? How do you let your teacher know? Uh, they don't understand really, and and they always blame it on me. And and hey, so if you tell me when you've had enough, okay? Because I don't want to use up your spoons today. So when you've had enough, you just say, "I've had enough." It's kind or, of entertaining. Oh, good, good. But I want to know more. What is happening physiologically that leads to this horrible experience of a meltdown? So I ask educational psychologist Sharon Goma. There's a lot that we don't know yet about how the brain and body works together, um, but we're increasingly learning things. One of the more recent discoveries that they've really been looking at is in what's called the vagus nerve. Um, And the vagus nerve is a big nerve that runs from the brain all the way through the body systems. And they're looking at how that vagus nerve takes in information from the world around it. And one of the things that they've they've realised is that the vagus nerve actually has neurons in it. Sharon says 80% of those neurons in the vagus nerve are collecting information from the world and sending it to the brain. So when meltdowns are happening, what you're seeing is a person who's getting a lot more input from the world, particularly the sensory world, and that is creating an overload. For example, autistic people have more sensory receptors in their brains, so they're at a physiological level taking in more sensory information. Um, and that sort of stuff just absolutely overwhelms the system. And when that happens, the frontal cortex of our brain just simply can't work because the brain switches into that fight or flight survival mode. Um, and then the brain and the body system really act to keep, keep keep somebody safe and keep them alive and keep all of the rest of the body systems working, keep the heart um, beating and blood circulating. And so when that's happening, the energy has to go to those parts of the brain. So the energy in the front part of the brain is just not there anymore. So it's, it literally switches off. And so when you're in a meltdown and you were trying to you know, talk to people and get them to calm down, it's just not going to work because those parts of the brain are just not there in that moment. So supporting kids who are in that meltdown really comes into that. How do we co-regulate with them? How do we come alongside them and support that nervous system to calm? So if we're looking at it from a nervous system perspective rather than a behavioural perspective, it's not how can we get that person to calm down? It's how can we calm their nervous system? I know for many people this is a massive shift in thinking. Looking at outbursts or defiance or even mutism is simply a physiological response to a perceived threat. The behaviour is not willful or malicious and sometimes it's not even conscious. Disability advocate Matt Frost is in his 40s now but he still has the occasional full-on meltdown and he's pretty good at describing what it's like for him. I don't want you to know I'm having a meltdown because a meltdown is actually quite, for me, is quite an embarrassing thing. It's quite still something that I feel quite ho-ha about. Meltdowns can come at a variety of speeds. Like I think traditionally we kind of see meltdowns as going, you go from zero to 100 really quickly. And I've had meltdowns like that. But the way in which I describe it, and I, I once did it with a, a manager I really trusted, is there's a kind of one to five scale. Matt says when he's at one on the meltdown scale, he might start speaking really quickly. At two or three, things are ramping up, but it's still possible for people supporting him to be alongside him and calm his nervous system. But at meltdown level four and five, it's just about keeping him safe. There's no point trying to talk him down. Nah, that train is gone, right? Because I'm actually not hearing you. And I I remember meltdowns where I literally 
like it's just noise. It's just noise coming at me, Sonia. And the fallout afterwards can be horrible. Once you've had the meltdown, you go, oh, my God, I've had it. Oh, my God. Uh, and I don't want people to judge me. Oh, my. And I feel really, really bad because I've done that in a public space and blah, blah, blah. So it kind of gets into this kind of circle of doom, right? And part of the part of the working through the stigma stuff is going, actually, that's just a physiological response, right? As long as I haven't done stuff that's irreparable, right? And the thing about meltdowns is because they're so traumatic, people sometimes don't remember them. This is important to highlight because kids often face consequences at school for behaviour that's happened during a meltdown. And this can lead to a lack of trust and authority. They feel like they're being unfairly punished. When people talk about having gone through trauma and they don't remember what's happened because it's so traumatic, their brain, to protect them, blocks it out. It's like that. They're going into trauma all the time. When when we say dysregulated, that's actually what's occurring in the background. They're going into a sense of this traumatic state. There's just no way the brain's going to want to remember any of that uh, when it comes back down and, and the, the critical thinking top part of the brain gets connected back onto the stem once the blood goes out of the out of the angry thing. Rob says he's learnt so much in the last few years and he wants other parents, particularly dads like him, to know there is another way. I brought myself to tears in a few times. I realised that I thought I had a good relationship with my kids. I did not, not at all. Um, Far deeper now and I actually truly understand my kids way better because I've pushed myself through this process. And Rob's daughter Sophie has a surprise for me. I'm going to a new school tomorrow. What? Yeah, it's a little anxious, but my mum and dad think I'll be able to handle it. My kids trust me way more now than they ever have before, and that relationship, I love it. Yeah, if it, if it wasn't wasn't for having a couple of neurodiverse kids, I would not uh, have the understanding that I have today. I would not be involved doing the things. I, I'm so much happier for it. The success has shifted. How's our relationships? Are we happy? Are we healthy? That's success for us, not money in the bank or cars up the driveway. And Sophie knows her difference actually makes her very, very special. If everybody wasn't different, then imagination wouldn't. There's no imagination created. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It helps other people find it. No Such Thing as Normal is produced and presented by me, Sonia Gray. The editor is Nathan King. Production coordinator is Lucy Cole. Arwen O'Connor and Mitchell Hawkes are executive producers. This series is brought to you by the New Zealand Herald and Team Uniform, and it's made with the support of New Zealand On Air. New episodes of No Such Thing as Normal are available every Saturday, wherever you get your podcasts.